Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. All right, so chapter two, Parents as Rulers. The family government, an absolute monarchy. So moving on from communism and the family as a commune, we get to talk about the actual type of government that a family is and she is saying it must be an absolute monarchy conditioned very loosely by the law of the land but still an absolute monarchy Mm -hmm. i guess that makes you a king i am the absolute monarch (laughs) (laughs) yeah it uh she says the the parents represent the government but here the government is ever an absolute monarchy She's referencing the Bible here where she's talking about coming down from the mount. She's talking about Moses with his be-meaning countenance, with his Ten Commandments, while others others just get the the broken tablets that that were broken as he came down the first time. But be his knowledge of the law little or much, no parent escapes the call to rule. So regardless of you, if you want it or not... The fact that you are a parent means you have a call to rule. That's true. One of the things she does throughout this chapter is she keeps a running dichotomy going where she'll talk about one type of family or one type of parent, and then she'll talk about another type of parent. And she goes back and forth between the good parent and the bad parent or the parent that is following these rules and the parent that is not following these rules and so we'll we'll see that as we as we continue so the first thing we ask for in a ruler is is he able to rule does he know how to maintain his authority i thought this was interesting because she starts drawing comparisons not necessarily with kings or queens or monarchs the people that she first draws comparisons to are an unjust judge, an impious priest, an ignorant teacher. That is, he fails in the essential attribute of his office. It's interesting to me, I guess. This is even more true in the family than in the state. The king may rule by deputy, but here we see the exigent nature of the parent's functions. He can have no deputy. Helpers he may have, but the moment he makes over his functions and authority to another, the rights of parenthood belong to that other and not to him. So a parent can abdicate his role as a parent, but as soon as the parent abdicates that role, it's gone. Somebody else has that function, has that office, that authority. Because someone will have that authority over the children. Even if it's themselves. But they will have an authority figure, and they will have someone that governs them. The, the hope and the idea being that the parents are that governing body until the child can take over as his own governing body, which she gets to later in the chapter when she talks about children coming of age and leaving the house. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Backing up just a tiny bit. Exigent? I had to look that up. It means demanding. The demanding nature of the parents' functions. Huh. Which, yes... Children are very demanding. No. So the ways that 
the causes that parents give up their authority. She she references King Lear, a Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. I also had to look that up. And he has three daughters, and he asks them, basically, do you love me? And is planning on dividing his kingdom between the three of them. Two daughters give this flowery speech, and he immediately gives their inheritance to them. And the third one says, you know, I love you as much as I should. And he disinherits her and divides it between the other two. And expects that his two daughters who absolutely love him will take care of him in his old age. Turns out that they were lying. And they basically <laughs> threw him to the wolves. Um, Shock of shocks. And it's it's a tragedy. The category of King Lear is a tragedy as far as Shakespeare plays go. And he... And, and she she draws this to where he has been divesting himself of the honor and authority that belonged to him and gave his rights away. Thus, he has a thankless child, ch- two children. This this quote is also at the very end of an absolute scathing tirade that he he goes on against his daughter. It was impressive. Yeah, you read a bit to me. I I suggest to anyone who hasn't read that, you should go find that excerpt and read it. It's impressive, the amount of vitriol he has for... His own daughter. Or daughters. But this goes back to the fact that he did not do to them what he owed them. He did not give them the duty that he owed them. And in proportion, they did not give it to him. The, The relationship scheme and the power balance was out of whack from the beginning so that it did not balance out in the end. Mm-hmm. The next page, she goes on to the other way. Are you afraid of me, Bessie? Says the mother. No, indeed. Who can be afraid of a dear, sweet, soft little mother like you? <laughs> she says, these words in the mouth of a child are as treasonable as words of defiance. So you can go two both ways. You can go the way of kind of ignoring and letting them go their own way. Or you can just be so soft and gentle that no one, no child has the appropriate respect of your authority. Well, we all know children. We all had friends when we were kids whose parents were the best parents ever, who never said no, who always bought their kids the coolest stuff. And as parents, we all know of other parents who are this way. And we see the way that their children interact with their parents and those around them where their parents have no authority over the children, and the children run roughshod over their parents. You go on to see another way that you can lay down your authority. And again, she references Shakespeare and The Tempest with Prospero and Antonio. Prospero is the king, and he he gets usurped by his brother Antonio. Antonio is power-hungry and foolish, and... Prospero, like it says, he is dedicated to studying and the bettering of his mind. And so basically they he gets shuffled off to a lonely deserted island where he can do just that. And I don't know where that train of thought was going. Well, it's the it's the two sides of the coin. It's the two ways you can lose that authority. You can either be you can you can ignore them. You can try and be their friend. Because he the what she says here is even so, the busy parent, occupied with many cares, awakens to find the authority he has failed to wield has dropped out of his hands, perhaps has been picked up by others less fit, and a daughter is given over to the charge of a neighboring family while father and mother hunt for rare prints. 
Here, in this instance, father and mother are ignoring their child. Uh, when we worked at camp, the, the camp we worked at was a camp that sold itself to rich parents and kids of rich parents. A lot of these kids were in boarding schools. A lot of them, even if they weren't in boarding schools, they had better relations with their gardener or their, their uh, nanny than they did with their parents because their parents were doing just that. They were on the hunt for rare prints. And the children, even the children that came from the richest of homes, where they had all of the things, they were some of the most insecure, scared, sometimes angry children. And that was one of the things that we had to work through at camp, is to help these kids learn that we, the, the counselor and the staff, can be trusted, that we are there for them, that we do listen, that we do love them. And that was a thing that a lot of the kids had a hard time getting to. It goes back to what we were talking about during chapter one, uh, kids learning to trust. We, we had to work really hard to gain any sort of modicum of trust from those kids. On the other side of that coin, though, we had some kids who were camp staff kids. Now, the camp staff were made up of college students and teachers and longtime outdoor camp enthusiast type people they weren't the they they weren't the industry leader i don't know rich people and the kids that grew up with parents like that they were great they listened they could talk they didn't deal with issues of abandonment and anger they still had issues yeah but but they were they were different issues, and you could see a stark difference between kids that grew up not really knowing their parents and not being under the authority of their parents, and kids that did. And it was a stark contrast seeing those two types of children, those two types of personalities next to one another. So I think that's where that's where she's going. She she has she's outlined three instances now, uh, two from Shakespeare, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, two instances from Shakespeare, and then one from seemingly her own uh, making, as three instances of bad parenting. Well, she sums it up. The love of ease, the love of favor, the claims of other work are only some of the causes which lead to a result disastrous to society, the abdication of parents. And she, she questions why. What are the causes that lead parents to resign this position as a domestic ruler? And it comes down to one. The office is too troublesome and too laborious. And another Shakespeare reference. I think she must have been reading her Shakespeare at this time. (laughs) Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, even if it's the natural crown of parenthood. And that comes from Henry IV, who also had amazing parenting skills. That sarcasm. Dripping sarcasm. (laughs) It's true. Parenting's hard. It's rough. Because the kids are always pushing. They're always trying to find the boundaries. They're always trying to see if you're actually going to follow through on what you said. I I can't tell you how many times an ultimatum gets laid down and then the child does the thing that the ultimatum was laid down regarding and then kind of looks up and goes, all right, what are we going to do? Now what? I just did the thing. It it is so blatantly obvious in our 16-month-old. Yeah. Where you nothing is hidden from from one year olds. Mm-hmm. Everything that they're thinking is on their face and in their <laughs> actions. And you you can see them. We say, "Don't touch, 
And he puts his hand right back up. Don't touch. Puts his hand right back up. Really, don't touch. Mm -hmm. And eventually he might go his way and then come back again. But he is, you can see it in his eyes. Yeah. He wants to, and he needs to know that we mean what we say. It's one of the things that I've had to work on as being a parent is when you give an ultimatum, you have to give an ultimatum that one makes sense and two, you're willing to follow through on. Yep. Because if you don't, you, you're kind of screwed. So th- there have to be, there has to be a gradual ultimatum system where it's not, well, if you keep doing that, then I'm going to do whatever it is that is the most worst punishment ever. If you keep disobeying me like this, you're going to be grounded for a million years. The child's going to go, well, I mean, all right, dad, ground me for a million years or make me, I don't know, whatever. It, it, it has to be, it has to be something that you're willing to follow through on. Cause if you don't, the kid's going to pick up on that and they're going to go, oh, dad's making another ultimatum, whatever. It doesn't really matter. He's just going to get mad. The the best one I've heard of is, you know, the mom at the supermarket that says, if you do this again, we're going home. Child does it again. And she leaves her grocery cart full of everything <laughs> and goes home. I'm pretty sure your mom did this at one point. I wouldn't be surprised. And and that can leave such an impression where, no, mom said we were leaving and we left. We, yeah. we just left. Yeah. The one that I remember was we were driving on a Sunday afternoon out to mom's house and the kids were in the back doing something, just messing with each other. And this, the comment was made, all right, if you guys keep going, we're going to pull over. And of course they kept going and we looked at each other. Well, okay. I glanced over cause I was driving. I was like, all right, are we pulling over? Yeah, we're pulling over. All right, here we go. We're doing this. And well, he pretty much slammed on his brakes. <laughs> No, they were not expecting it. I felt well. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I it was. Kinda, it was rather abrupt. I, sh- I shocked them, I, and I think that's that's the one time that that's had to happen. Yep. Because they learned they learned that when it's not it's not a card we pull. Gosh, it's not a card we pull almost ever. Because more than not, I don't want to stop. I don't want to turn around. If you're at the supermarket, I, I don't want to leave, or the grocery store, depending on where you're at. I don't want to leave. You're there to buy groceries. But sometimes it's got to be done. But sometimes it's got to be done. All right. So that that was the... Uh, That's how you can abdicate your role as a parent. Causes which lead to the abdication of parents. Then she goes into a, a section where she is magnifying it and, and bringing out the... Yes, it is a troublesome office. It's laborious. It's hard work. It's demanding. But... You're the one who has been given this authority. And that authority is given to you for use and purpose. Not for your honor and glory. Not just because you're the parent, but it's to given to you so that you can be an authority over the children. Reaching back to what she was talking about in the first chapter, one of the things we talked about is that you, and only you, can be the parent for your child. And that no one else can be as good a parent as you, the parent, can be. And I feel like she's reaching back a little bit to to chapter one to remind us of that. And to remind us of how good it is that we are the parent. She goes on to talk about how some educationalists counsel that children be treated on equal terms from the beginning. And she says, but the children themselves come to our aid in that they... 
they they show us that what they need. They show us that they need authority. They show us that they need somebody to to be over them and in charge of them. And it's not up to parents to lay this duty aside or to sink under it. They have to rise to the occasion. She goes on to talk about who we are to the children and well let me oh. hold on let me stop you i have this little bit highlighted the fact the fact that there are two parents each to lend honor to the other yet free from restraint in each other's presence makes it easier to maintain the impalpable state of parenthood again reaching back to what she was talking about earlier there are two parents a mother and a father and the two parents work in union with one another they're not at odds with one another the parents are to complement and inspire one another and this is something that does come up on a regular basis with us is we have we have certain rules that are engraven in stone and then there are other rules that are are much more flexible something where i am working with them and allowing them to do something different and unusual and normally not allowed is when John might come home from work and be like, oh no, you can't be doing this. You and can't be doing this, you're doing child. wrong, and discipline them. If, when I, in my authority, have allowed him to do that. Mm-hmm. And this is where we can work as a team and in tandem, where John will talk to me as far as, hey, is Ian's doing this? Is this okay? And And touch base before just diving in. I remember an example from, from uh, a couple days ago. The kids were, I think it was Saturday, the kids were supposed to be having rest time. They were supposed to each be upstairs in a bedroom and being quiet and calm. And I came upstairs because I heard a thumping, which a thumping is normally not a quiet, calm sound. And I heard the door banging and all kinds of stuff. I was like, this is, this can't be right. We're supposed to be having rest time. So I go up and open the door and Ian, our oldest, is playing with a a little ball. Uh, It's like a, I don't know. Dodgeball, bouncy ball. Yeah, it's a dodgeball, bouncy ball type ball. And I open the door and I look at him and I, um, it's rest time. And I was about to tell him that he shouldn't be playing with the ball. And I caught myself. I turned to the stairs and I called down, hey, Crystal, he's playing with the ball during rest time. And Crystal called back up to me. That's okay. I told him he could. And so I got to turn around back to Ian and say, okay, you're playing with a ball. Let's make sure you're actually being restful and calm and not being crazy. And so it was an instance where... I could see in his eyes when I opened the door that he was nervous, that he was about to get in trouble. And it was fun to be able to say like, no, you're good. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to do, even if what you're doing right now is typically not what you're supposed to do. So that's that's an instance where uh, the two parents can work to lend honor to each other, to be able to parent children in tandem and flex and flow with things that come up. And I think it's very important for us as parents to be able to do that with our children. So anyway, I wanted to I wanted to touch on that because that's a that's a thing that I know parents struggle with, and it it's tough sometimes to be on the same page with your spouse. And I think the only way to be on the same page is to talk about it, which is have all of, your... of those uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, and they are uncomfortable, but they need to they, happen. They can be uncomfortable. Uh, you're right; they can be uncomfortable. But hard things always can be uncomfortable, unless you always want to talk about the weather. Yeah, and the weather sucks recently. I don't want to talk about the weather. It's all gray and cloudy and rainy. It was sunny today. We got outside. Oh, I guess that's true. I and didn't. The day before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the pea soup that was last night. Oh, goodness. That was gross. 
All right. Anyway, uh, so next, children are a public trust and a divine trust. I cut you off earlier. So children are a public trust and a divine trust. In the first place, parents are the immediate and personally appointed deputies of the Almighty King, the sole ruler of men. They have not only to fulfill his counsels regarding the children, but to represent his person. His parents are as God to the little child. And yet more constraining thought, God is to him what his parents are. That is... Heavy? Extremely heavy. It's almost mind-blowing heavy, where you go, I am representing the deity in my child's life. Yeah. The almighty king, the ruler of men, the divine spirit. And my children will form their understanding and knowledge of who God is and what his personality and characteristics are like by watching me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's huge. That's heavy. You read in scripture about the parallels between husband and wife and Christ and the church. And we like that parallel. We use it in marriage ceremonies and we talk about it in church and that's great. This one is way more heavy than that, though, in my opinion, that... God is the father, and I am the father to my children. And God refers to him as a father, to himself as a father. And he refers to the relationship he has with us as a father does with his children. It's really heavy. Because I've talked to people who don't have a good relationship with their father, who had an absentee father, who had a, had a bad father, an abusive father. And that's the image of God that they have in their head when they read scripture that says, God is your father. They go, but my father was an abusive a-hole. But that's not a good connotation, a good, right. a good um, connection for them. Right. That they had to work through that and go, okay, that is what my father was, but that's not what God the father is. And that's something that they have to work through. And how how heavy is it that we as the parents are the image of God for our children and that whatever our shortcomings are, because they're there, they're going to have to work through those shortcomings when considering the character of God. Yep. And she only gives, you know, one brief paragraph to this and just kind of drops it in your lap like, oh yeah, by the way, this is, this is also there. I think it's heavy enough that she didn't have to talk about it much. I wonder if it's already talked about by the church in her day and age. Oh, you know what might have been? Where she's almost like, well, I don't need to expound on this point because everyone knows about it. I don't know. I don't either, but that's an interesting observation. It might not have been as mind-boggling then as it is now. Not that it's not, it wouldn't still be heavy, but if it's a more normal thing to talk about. I don't know. Interesting. Moving on to the public trust, this is one that, that, that gets me sometimes, where she's talking about children being trained for the welfare of the community, and their their good is for the good of the state. Mm-hmm. Where you, I, I, as an American, go back, back up and say, hey, no, this is, <laughs> this is my child. I, this is not the state's child. This mm-hmm. is my child that I am raising. But she is talking in the sense that Parents have a duty to society to turn out children who are better than they are, to be able to bless the world with people who are not merely good-natured and well-disposed, but of good set purpose and endeavor. As a duty to 
society and the community, you train them to to be kind, to be respectful, mm-hmm. to, to watch out for those who are are not as strong, who are not as skilled, to sweep the sidewalk for people, to hold open doors, to do all of those those things that create a better society. Because only at home can children be trained in the chivalrous temper of proud submission and dignified obedience. That's going back to the majesty mm-hmm. of parenthood. She's calling back again on chapter one, the, the restoration of the family, and even the family must serve the nation, where that is the duty of the family, and it's duty of the children, and therefore it's the duty of the parents to raise the children to be able to fulfill that duty. And it's the, uh, we talked about it any number of times in chapter one, it's that screw is the only analogy I can think of, the the winding up, the... Upward spiral. Thank you. The upward spiral of exponential growth of children and families and trust and, and everything, where we have children that follow these principles and they do too and and it grows and grows this piggybacks on a lot of that i think Mm -hmm. the thing that tripped me up here is she talks about a neighboring nation she says even today well let me back up a little bit no doubt the state reserves it to wow reading is hard (laughs) no doubt the state reserves to itself virtually the power to bring up its own children in its own way with the least possible cooperation of parents Even today, a neighboring nation has elected to charge itself with the training of its infants. So as soon as they can crawl, or sooner, before even they run or speak, they are to be brought to the maternal school and carefully nurtured as with mother's milk and the virtues proper for a citizen. I couldn't find what she was referring to. I found somebody who has read through Parents and Children and wrote their notes online. She says this goes back to France. And actually, the maternal schools schools go back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Oh, oh! The French nurseries schools began in 1771. I'm going to actually absolutely butcher this. L'école maternelle. It was a free state organized and funded school for ages two to six. And education in this system is now absolutely foundational to the education system in France. I think it was, was it about a third of two-year-olds attend, and almost 100% of children aged three to six are enrolled in this program. Now? Now. Wow. And it was, in in the 1830s, it was free full-day services for ages two to six. The goals stated were to teach order, cleanliness, and respect to prepare them for an honest, decent Christian life. And that sounds exactly like what the parents are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And they provided this for the parents. And it goes to a broader discussion of parental and maternity leave and support for families and working parents and how the what what role the government plays in these types of things. And the United States is absolutely abysmal with their maternity leave. Yes. To the point of ranking I think second to last, one of only two countries in the world that does not have paid maternity leave guaranteed for mothers. Like nothing. Guaranteed. No paid maternity leave at all. The FMLA only guarantees unpaid maternity leave under certain circumstances. 
And the FMLA is? The Family Leave and Medical Act. Hmm. It's for uh, companies that have over 50 employees. So companies that have over 50 employees are not legally required to offer paid maternity leave. No. I wonder if my company offers paid maternity leave. I don't know. Have we never had this conversation about maternity leave? We've had conversations about it. I don't I don't know if we've ever had it about the paid maternity leave. Most mostly when we have the conversation it's about the maternity leave that mothers are allowed to take is not long enough. You have parents that go back after just a handful of weeks because that's all that they are offered. Again, FMLA is applies to I believe companies over 50 employees, I believe you have to have been working there for a certain amount of time, and they essentially will hold your position for those six weeks of unpaid maternity leave. And that is required by law. But it's unpaid. But it's unpaid, and it does not apply to the companies under 50 employees. In France, where we're, we're looking at here, they get 16 weeks paid they get about six before the birth and 10 after the birth. The second child, you get 26 weeks, eight before the birth and 18 after. Whoa. And you can take unpaid parental leave until your third birthday, until the child's third birthday. In which Whoa. case, they go to this state school, this 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 nursery school. Right. And now you're you're free to go to work for the times that the child is in school. And so it it's it's a it's a vastly different mindset and again it's it's hard to not make this or hard not to bring this into the political arena who's paying for what Yeah who is paying for the raising and of the children who is providing for the children Mhm is it welfare is it the the parents who have worked before children and now have one parent staying at home? Is it the grandparents raising the children? Is it, you have all of these different arrangements that the family can be in. And the question is who pays for it? Because someone has to. And here it's the government paying for it. And she says later, it will doubtless be, be carried through. And, and it has this, the system is mm -hmm. still in effect. Because the nation in question has long discovered and acted consistently upon the discovery that what you would have the man become, you must train the child to be. And that was, that mindset was also prevalent in Germany around the, the times of the World Wars. They had Hitler's youth. Yeah, yeah. What you would have the man to be, you train the child to be. And you see it in, in the Middle East. Where you take young boys and they have guns and they know how to use them and you're training them to do this. Right. What was the movie Because I that's watched? what you want them to become. Uh, the movie Blood Diamond. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jimon Hansu. And I butchered his name and sorry. We'll continue the, the us butchering of any words that aren't explicitly american in the movie he is an african i don't know where i don't remember none of the none of the other details matter his kid is taken from him by a militant organization and is given a rifle and taught to use it and taught to kill 
taught that his parents were worthless and this militant organization, they are his new parents and he needs to follow them and trust them. And the other boys are his brothers and they're his family. And the movie is about, is about this father who is trying to rescue his son and willing to go to great lengths to rescue his son. And the, the spiral into darkness that his son goes through and yeah, that that's, I mean, I don't know how accurate the, the story in the movie is, but that's a thing that happens. And we also see it here in America, where our children are taught from a young age, whatever the school system they're in decides they need to know. And they're indoctrinated in certain things that may or may not be what they should be indoctrinated in. And may or may not line up with what the the parents want. And that's where parents, like they were saying, they cannot de- uh, depute their authority, but they can have helpers. Mm-hmm. They have to be very, very careful who those helpers are and what those helpers will be teaching. Right. Real quick, back to France. There's a book written back in 2012, Bringing Up Bebe. It's about an American mother who was living in France and how she was raising her child based on what she knew. And the French mothers were were just, that's not how they were doing it at all. And they were culture shock both ways as to how, what are you, what are you doing? That's not how you raise children. That's not what you do. So I read it back in the day (laughs) it was it was a good read but at the same time it was bringing up things i'm like yeah that sounds good but what does it really diving into it what does it really mean and and this was before i found charlotte mason and obviously before i've read this part of her books and and that that's probably why it didn't sit quite right because sending your child to school at the age of two or three is deputing that authority mm-hmm. at extremely young ages. Mm-hmm. So interesting. And she goes on to say that perhaps such public deposition of parents is the last calamity that can befall a nation. Those poor little ones are to grow up in a world where the name of God is not to be named. Mm-hmm. To grow up without training in filial duty and brotherly love and neighborly kindness. Then she she moves to another reference. Um, (laughs) She's talking about Lycurgus. He is basically the founder of Sparta. Mm -hmm. And he kept the the kids at their their parents until the age of seven. Mm -hmm. In which case they are then brought into the the state education system and they graduate at the age of 20. And then (laughs) they they go into this this group of, of men, into their brotherhood. And basically, the only time that they would leave their brotherhood is for marital duties. Yeah, let's not hold the Spartans up on any pedestal here. But what she says is that even the Spartans, who had uh, a really deplorable education system, even they left the kids at home for at least six years. She's using the Spartans as a worst of the worst example and still saying, well, even the Spartans got that right. Like, the Spartans... God forbid that we should ever lose faith in the blessedness of family life. And I think that even 
without deputing that authority, even without sending our children away for most of the hours of the day, we can still lose sight of the blessedness of family life and the the joy that it is. Because staying at home with young children is extremely hard. And the days are so long. Come 4.30, I'm ready to throw in the towel. It's been a long day. Yeah. And even today, I, I had to go up. As soon as John got home from work, I had to go up and rest. And I was able to come back down and remember how much I love my children and remember how precious they are and remember how blessed we are to have them. But I needed that break. But it took a minute. So Yeah. I, I, like, I want to I end this section just by reading the, the whole of the end. But God forbid that we should ever lose faith in the blessedness of family life. Parents who hold their children as at the same time a public trust and a divine trust, and who recognize the authority they hold as deputed authority, not to be trifled with, laid aside, or abused, such parents preserve for the nation the immunities of home and safeguard the privileges of their order. What does it mean by their order? Is that is that talking about the or, order of parenthood and the authority that comes with it? Such parents preserve for the nation the immunities of home and safeguard the privileges of their order. Okay, so let's break the sentence down. Such parents preserve for the nation is a prepositional phrase. Preserve the immunities and safeguard the privileges of their order. I think it's referring to parenthood. Okay. Because for the nation modifies preserve who what are you preserving or i guess who are you preserving for well for the nation the immunities what immunities the immunities of home and safeguard the privileges of their order parents preserve immunities and safeguard privileges i think and i i didn't do so well in grammar at school, but I think of their order. I think I think the, their order is referring to the parents, the order of parenthood. Okay. All right. So moving forward, the limitations and scope of parental authority, having seen that it does not rest with the parents to use or to or to forego the use of the authority they hold, let us examine the limitations and the scope of this authority. In the first place, it is to be maintained and exercised solely for the advantage of the children, whether in mind, body, or estate. The use of authority is for the sake of those under authority. Yeah. The use of authority is not for the monarch. And we can see that in our own, in, in our children's lives. When we give children boundaries, they thrive. When we let children do whatever they want to do, they don't know what to do. One of the things that we do is we have a rotation of toys. We don't have all of our toys out all at the same time because we found early on that when we had all of the children or all of the toys out, the kids didn't know what to do. There would be toys everywhere and they'd just, they'd... There were too many. Yeah, they'd get bored. They There was, uh, I don't know, decision... Paralysis. Yeah, thank you. There was decision paralysis. They couldn't decide what to play with or how to play with them. But as soon as we took the majority of the toys away and gave them one thing to play with well all of a sudden they were happy as clams they and they'll they'll play with a single toy or a single set of toys for hours or at least minutes <laughs> happily because there's only one set of that toy so when when children are given boundaries they thrive 
and it's not for the parents that those boundaries are given, although boundaries are nice as parents because then the children stay within that boundary, but it's for the children so that they can learn and grow. A single decision made by the parents, which the child is or should be capable of making for themselves, is an encroachment on the rights of the child and a transgression on the part of the parents. Now, I can see a situation where someone were to take this quote, twist it, and take it a whole lot farther than I think is meant. A decision made by the parents, which the child is or should be capable of making for itself, is an encroachment on the rights of the child. Well, if you kind of fumble over the middle of that, a decision made by the parents is an encroachment on the rights of the child. Well, now all of a sudden, anything we do for our children can be taken as an encroachment on the child. And so therefore, we have to seek our child's permission or agreement to do anything, which I don't think that's where she's going with this. I don't, I don't see that here at all. I don't either, but I could see where you could, you could take this morphit and, and say you're following her principles and absolutely not be. That and I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say clearly that's not what she's talking about here, because we as parents we have that authority. We are their monarchs. We've been talking about it for over an hour now. She's or, she's talking about not putting their shoes on for them what they can put their shoes on. Exactly. No, I know. <laughs> okay. I know. I I realize that. Or or deciding which shoes to wear, deciding which clothes to wear. Now, if it's cold outside, we're going to tell our children, you need to wear long pants and a long sleeve shirt because it's cold and we'd like you to have your fingers when you're an adult and not have frostbite and your fingers fall off because, well, frostbite. So you don't get the choice to not wear gloves or a jacket, but you do get the choice to wear this pair of pants or that pair of pants. And if you have multiple pair, multiple jackets, we'll choose which one you want. It's a It's a choice that the child can make, but we don't give our babies that choice. We grab clothes for them and we throw their clothes on. So the one-year-olds are not capable of choosing which clothes to wear. Anybody in our house over the age of two is capable of choosing which clothes to wear within a certain set of guidelines. Even when it comes to church clothes. Uh, on on Sunday, Naomi came down wearing her purple pajama pants because she got ready for church. And I looked at her and I was like, those, those aren't church pants. And she looked down at them and looked back up at me and went, Oh yeah, church pants. And she ran back upstairs. And then she came back downstairs wearing not church pants again. And I was like, Naomi, those aren't church pants either. And she looked down at them, looked back up at me. Oh yeah, these aren't church pants. <laughs> and ran back upstairs and, and started, came down and showed me another pair of pants. I was like, okay, no, you, you need to go talk to your mother about what church pants are. <laughs> and so then she talked to Crystal about what church pants she had. So that was an instance where she clearly could not choose which pair of pants to wear because the selection criteria was, it was not clear to her. So Crystal had to help her by giving her the criteria. So our children are free to choose their own clothes, except when they're not. Well, and it moves forward to where the emancipation of the children is gradual. Day by day, more of the art and science of self-government is being learned. And it, it is so gradual that at times you don't think it's happening. And then you look and you go, oh, a year has passed. One of our daughters just had a birthday. Mm-hmm. And she's three. 
And there is so much she can do now at three that she could not do a year ago. Like talk. Like there's a lot of things. <laughs> and 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 yet you don't necessarily see that growth day by day. Mm-mm. You can see it sometimes week by week, sometimes month by month, but it, it is very gradual. And at the same time that they're gradually growing, we need to gradually be letting go. Mm-hmm. I read, I heard a quote one time that parenthood is the one job that you are trying to work yourself out of a job. <laughs> it, it's the one job that you want to stop. So badly. <laughs> well, and it, it, it's just counterintuitive because by the time yeah. you have your kids leave the house, you're, you've gotten pretty good at this whole parenthood thing. Expert parent. And, and yet your role has now changed. You, you need to abdicate gracefully and leave your grown-up sons and daughters as free agents. And that is a skill that is not always around. No, it's we, not. We hear stories of uh, mothers and fathers, or mostly mothers, calling college professors to talk about their child's grades. Mm-hmm. Or the child calling home from college saying, Mom, how do I work the laundry? <laughs> and and these are these are things that have slipped by the way and she goes on to say at that point it is too late to keep them in training mm-hmm. whether they're fit or unfit they must hold the rudder themselves and if they failed it's because most likely their parents are to blame for not having introduced them by degrees to this full liberty mm-hmm. which is their right as men and women so it, it's it's our responsibility to be as they are growing into this emancipation and the art of science and self-government, we are to be growing in our ability to let them do things mm-hmm. and to teach them how to do things and how to do it well. And to be able and okay with our children getting themselves into situations where they will, they can and potentially will fail. They will fall off of their bike if they're learning to, to rock climb. They will fall. They will slip. But we start them bouldering. We start them on the lowest levels. Mm-hmm. We start them on the balance bike. Yeah, we, we, we've started all of our kids on balance bikes to learn to ride bikes. And that was that's one of the things that Abigail can do now that she couldn't do a year ago. She could not ride her bike very well a year ago. Now she's a rock star. And we're talking about buying her a new bike for, for Christmas. Yep. Because she's, she's mastered the art of balance and she's ready to move on to the next the pedals and that's a scary thought to give a three-year-old a pedal bike because they can move pretty quick have to run to keep up yeah you have to run to keep up so as for the employment of authority the highest art lies in ruling without seeming to do so how do you do that how do i rule without seeming to do so i do it with a scepter and a whip i think you do it by laying on the floor i totally do it by (laughs) laying on the floor <laughs> but I like a scepter and a whip so much better with a crown and uh yeah. Yeah, no, I, I lay what, on the floor. What was that? Uh uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Yep. Nah, the crown rests on my head just fine. <laughs> <laughs> I look good. No, I, I think you're right. I think that is one of the reasons there that is one of the ways I parent is I lay on the floor and I let my children crawl all over me. That that's not what I'm meaning. It's you're you're there as the presence and the authority 
in the room. Therefore, they do not run around like crazy. Oh, yeah. They, they don't climb up on the table. Yeah. They, they don't do the things that they know are not supposed to happen. Because they're restrained by father wishes that or mother does not like this mm-hmm. in our presence. Yeah, as you're, as you're saying that, I'm reminded of when Ian and Naomi were little. They were both sleeping in beds, not cribs, so they weren't confined. And one of the things that we would do is we would put them to bed and then we would leave. And we would leave before both of them were asleep. And most nights, one of us would find ourselves in their room, laying down, just being. Not talking, not admonishing, not telling them, not even going in and barking at them. Just go in, close the door, turn the light out, grab a pillow, lay down. And they knew. They knew, oh, mom's mom's in here. I'm going to be quiet now. No more talking. No more talking. The game and, is and over. And now that they're older, we have three of them in the same room, they mostly self-regulate themselves. Mostly. Mostly. But- It'll be interesting to see what happens when the twins are older. If they will all self-regulate or if we'll have to be back in there on the floor. I wouldn't be surprised if we have to be back in there on the floor. Because we have to teach Isaac and Lily the same things that the older three had to learn. But the question is, how much are they going to have to learn from us? And how much will they learn from their older siblings? Mm -hmm. One of the things that you were talking about earlier that struck me is, or a comment I made actually, and it it struck me as I made it, when you're graduating children and you're, you're letting go of them and you're completing that emancipation, I said, you're now expert parents. The interesting thing, though, is that you're expert parents at parenting the children that you have at the age they are now. You might not be an expert parent of infants if you're emancipating your children. Well, and you're also an expert at your children. Because you've spent your time with them. So as much as, as, much as Crystal and I can give advice about how we do our life and we do our family, that only goes but so far with yours. Because your children are yours. Your children are individuals. Your family is an individual. Your your rules are yours. Your home is yours. Your family is a commune. Your family is your <laughs> commune, and we're just a commune next door, however far away that door is. So it's a it was a thought that struck me that I, I, I wanted to flesh out a little bit. And she leaves us with this. The best government is that in which peace and happiness, truth and justice, religion and piety are maintained without the intervention of the law. And that's very idealistic again. She ended the last chapter on an idealistic thought as well. Where, how how do we get this to work? How does this actually um, work, one, in our family, and, and two, in the nation? Mm-hmm. Because we are given laws to, we, we, the laws are given by the king or the, the governing body to reward those who are good and punish those who are evil. How how do you get everyone on the same page to have this peace, happiness, truth, justice, religion, piety? How do you get them on the same page to do this without a law, without punitive law? And again, I I don't know if that's answerable at this moment. I don't think it is, but I don't think you can do it through law. What One of the things we found with the United States is you can't legislate morality. Morality has to come from something, be it a deity, 
be it your sense of who you are in the world, be it wherever you think morality comes from. Morality has to come from somewhere, and it can't be the government. The government can't legislate morality. It can make rules that punish immorality, but that doesn't make moral people. That just makes people who don't do those specific things. Because morality is more than just your actions. Morality is your thoughts. It's, it's what Jesus talked about uh, during the, the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about, you've heard it's written that talks about murder. Well, I say that anybody who's, who hates their brother is guilty of murder. It's a mind thing. It's a thought thing. It's a heart thing. Morality and doing right is not, is not about the action, although the action is important. It's about the thought behind it and the motive. And when you legislate to, to make the population do what you want, you're not actually creating moral people. You're creating people who follow rules. And as soon as those rules get taken away, as soon as the, the people who force you to follow the rules get taken away, then you're, you're free to do whatever. We, we see this on college campuses sometimes, where children have not been raised to be moral. They've been raised by parents who force them to follow rules. My freshman year, I was at a Christian college, and we had a student there who died from alcohol poisoning. This was a homeschool kid. He grew up in a great home, and he died from alcohol poisoning because he didn't know how to self-regulate. He didn't know how to say, all right, that's, that's enough drinking. I'm done. All he knew was, whoa, I've never been allowed to drink before. I'm going to drink all the drinks all the time. And that's a situation we see with drinking. It's a situation we see with drugs. It's a situation we're starting to hear about now with the, the Me Too movement and with hearing about women coming forward and 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 men too, with stories of being raped or being victimized by people who would never do that in their right mind, or out of the circumstances where it happened, they would never do that. Well, but when you remove the laws that force people to behave, people don't behave. So how do we create this society? Well, we, we don't do it by law, because that doesn't work. We do it by family. By the, by the same thing that, that Charlotte Mason talked about in chapter one. We do it by, by the family. By the family being a commune. And then we, we do it by the families being, being a monarchy. There you go. Wow, that was heavy. Any other thoughts? I just like this last sentence. I guess not the last sentence, but I highlighted this. The law is a terror to evildoers, but the praise of them that do well. And pretty, in the sure, pretty sure that's scripture. That's what I was trying to quote. And then I didn't realize that she had written it, written it right there. She definitely did wrote it, wrote it here. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. The law is a terror to evildoers, but for the praise of them that do well. And in the family, as in the state... The best government is that in which peace and happiness, truth and justice, religion and piety are maintained without the intervention of the law. Happy is the household that has few rules, and where mother does not like this, and father wishes that, 
are all constraining. Are we ready? Sure. Alright, here's the... Ow. Ow. Try with Ow. your other hand. Huh? Try with your other hand. Nope. Wait. No, this is an audio podcast. Alright, here's my other hand. Man, that other hand, it worked so well. He's a liar. That's why this house is about to burn down. How's what? Your pants are on fire. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a jump I, I didn't get. I did not notice any water analogies in this chapter. Uh, I don't think there were any. I don't think there were. She was she was on a Shakespeare kick. She was. So, sand or and water. And Plutarch. Uh, light like Hergus is in Plutarch. Yeah. So she was reading her Plutarch and her Shakespeare. Or just pulling it. <laughs> All right. So the the theme of the first chapter was water. The theme of the second chapter was the classics. I think theme is the wrong word. You're right. A common thread. Common possibly. thread. Yeah. The common thread throughout the chapter. The first one was water. Second one's Shakespeare. The classics. Because it was Shakespeare and Plutarch. It was Shakespeare. Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Well, I guess Bible, Shakespeare, 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 Plutarch. <laughs> and Bible. She ended on Bible. Okay. The classics. Thank you for listening. Check us out at charlottemasonsays.com. If you enjoy what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. If you want to get a hold of us, email us at charlottemasonsays at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cmsays.com.